by him with a plan and a purpose. But that love that is extended to all of creation is limited in the sense that those individual creations, the humanity, still has to make an effort to receive the gospel. See, there's those that think, because God loves me, when I stand before him in my sin, apart from Jesus Christ, I'm good. Because he loves me, I'll be fine. I'll be, I'll be forgiven in that moment. There's, there's no need to worry about my sin or whether I've received Christ or not because, well, God is love and God loves me. And we have to take it a step and understand from the Bible's point of view, what did that love bring to us and what do we need to receive as God has loved us? And so Paul says that the gospel was not just preached, it was received and therefore you stand in it. Verse 2, by which also you are saved. And there's that key again, by which. What is the which? The gospel. By the gospel, you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. What's he saying there? It's not loss of salvation. He's saying you will continue to know you're saved as long as you really believed in the gospel and put your faith and trust in that and that alone. But if you believed in vain, meaning you just made a mouth profession with no heart change, you just went to church to do the church thing, but there was really no conversion internally. It's just words. He says, then that belief is vain. It's fruitless. It's empty. It says on here in verse 3, For I have delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Says, I'm just giving you the message that I was given. It says here, How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Catch that now. According to the Scriptures. That means it was a fulfillment of all that Isaiah, for example, spoke of, of what Christ would do. And let me ask you a question. It's not rhetorical. You can answer out loud. Why did Christ die? For our... Okay, remember that. Not sin in just the sense of he died for sin. It says he died for our sins. Okay, we have to note that. Verse 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. May I praise God for his word. Isn't it amazing we can go into God's word and we can find truth and we can find understanding? What does Paul tell Timothy, right? To, and I'm paraphrasing, to remain in the scriptures, to remain faithful to the scriptures because the scriptures are where you first found out how to be saved. And we go to his word. This is our foundation. It says here in verse five. So he was buried, he rose again, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this presence. Not this present, meaning right now. Right? They're not still walking around 2,000 years later, so don't, don't get that twisted. He's saying, no, no, no. He's writing to these Corinthians. He's saying, listen, you could go and talk to them. You could go find someone in that group of 500 and have a conversation with them. You can talk to individuals that actually saw the risen Christ. How amazing. It says here, the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Some have passed on. Verse 7, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. We know this because what does Paul reveal to us, and, or what does Luke reveal to us about the life of Paul in Acts chapter 9? We read about the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. Christ appeared to him. Verse 9, for I am the least of all the apostles that are not meet to be called an apostle 
because I persecuted the church of God. This is not him rejecting his apostolic authority. He's not saying, I have no right to write to you as an apostle. He's merely making a point that I don't deserve to be called an apostle, is what he's saying. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Man, isn't it important we take this verse in context? People can use this verse for all kinds of things. Well, you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am, as you're excusing your behavior for something. I just get angry easily. It's just, it's who I am. You know how I am, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you see how quickly, if we're not very careful, we could take a biblical truth and suck it out of its context and just plop it into our moment and just explain away and justify anything we want? Well, God says, by grace, I am what I am. So God, you have to accept me just as I am. And isn't it funny how we can twist even the word of God to make us seem like we're the all-star, we're the, we're the main point, and we can excuse any and all things we do. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, no, understand the context. By grace, I am what I am. What is he saying? I am only an apostle of Jesus Christ because of grace. I am only an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because I deserved it, but because of grace. Because I am what I am. And his grace, verse 10 continues, and his grace, was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Is my mic cutting out? Did I just cut out there? A little bit? Okay, well, if it goes out, just turn the pulpit mic on, guys. Okay. We see this here in, in 1 through 10. We see an amazing presentation, not only of the gospel, but also and the viewing of Christ, but also the life of the Apostle Paul and how important and crucial grace was to his life and his ministry. He doesn't just talk about how grace is involved in the moment of salvation. He says, no, it's, it's crucial to me because it's involved in my everyday life and ministry. He says that it was grace, the grace of God that was extended to him. It was grace that has made him who he is. It is grace of God that equipped him for his ministry. And it was the grace of God that motivated him to serve. Paul says it was all by grace. The Apostle Paul says, I am the least of all apostles. Did you catch that? The least of all apostles. And yet, as far as we have record, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, more than any other apostle. As far as we have record of what he did, the Apostle Paul did more for the mission endeavors of Jesus Christ than any other apostle. It doesn't mean the rest of them did nothing. But the comparison seems to be, if just what we have in Scripture, that in fact the Apostle Paul did more on planet Earth, per se, maybe say it this way, accomplishments, than the other apostles, but yet he says, I'm the least. Can I tell you something? When we, when we realize we're the least and we're, we're not the all-star, we're not the most important, and we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, I believe that's when God can use us to do the most things for him. But here's the thing. It doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing either. What does Paul say? He says in verse 10, but I labored more abundantly than they all. What's he saying? He's not, he's not being prideful or bragging. He's saying, man, I worked hard. What motivated him to work so hard and to labor so much? God's grace. He realized, look what I've received. How can I do anything but just serve him? And that, that's not about being the main star or the one on, on center stage. It's about just doing what God has called you to do, where he's led you to, and serve him there. 
and just work hard. Now, this is where we can get out of context and say, okay, so we're never supposed to take a vacation. We never take a day off. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. This week's spring break. I'm taking the week off. Just laying it out there, okay? I have no qualms, no issue, okay? Two hands clapped. All right, great. Praise the Lord, okay? You don't need to applaud it. I'm doing it whether you like it or not. I don't really just... It's irrelevant to me, really. It doesn't mean we don't take time to relax and to spend time with family and to, to just enjoy time to just... What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, no, I labored more abundantly, meaning I put work into my life as far as for Christ. I put effort into this. I didn't just sit back and just let things go. I put, I worked. Why? Because I realized my life needs to be a sacrificial offering to Christ. I need to give everything to him. So listen, when you're on vacation and you're in that hotel room, you can still witness when you're at work, you can still share Christ. You can still pray for that loved one that needs prayer. When we take a vacation, yeah, we can detach from the vocation we're in, but we can still look for opportunities to serve Christ wherever we find ourselves. That's what Paul's saying. I mean, I worked hard. Paul understood much more than I. I pray that I'll understand just a snippet, just a, just a small amount of what Paul understood about grace. But as we look at what Paul shares about the grace of God in relation to the gospel, I want to look at the connection between grace in our lives, grace from him, and forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is difficult. But in Christ, there's that phrase again, in Christ, it is not impossible. It is not impossible. And some of us need to believe that this morning. Some of you have been hurt and wounded. And I'm not talking about somebody didn't shake your hand during greet time. I'm talking about legitimate, like legitimately somebody has hurt you or said something to you or done something to you. And it's, it's almost as though it's like, God, I know I need to forgive them. It's just, it seems impossible. I hope by the end of the message today, you will at least realize, God, I still feel like it's impossible, but I know it's not. I feel like it might be impossible, but I know it's not. The first thing we have to understand in this connection, and I'm going to give you a lot of content, and so I pray you bear with me as we walk through this topic. Um, I'll give you an idea. Usually I like about three pages of notes, about three pages of notes. I've got four pages of notes this morning. Some of you are good at math. You know how long we usually go for, and you're already thinking, hmm, I should have put the crock pot on low, not high, okay? But I want to walk through this this morning, and I want to make sure I give you guys just what God was just opening his word up this week. And, and man, I want to share this this morning because the first thing we have to understand is that grace comes from God. Simple, right? That grace comes from God. Grace originates with him. Its source is found in, in God alone. To discover, as we talked about actually on Wednesday nights here a couple weeks ago, to discover if a teaching or a doctrine is accurate and true. We must ask the question of its origin. Did it originate with God or from something or someone created by God? Does a doctrine or a teaching that we believe about God to know if it's true or false, did it originate with God or did it originate with someone or something created by God? Isn't this what Paul says to 
to the church when he says, if an angel or anyone preaches another gospel, you should call them accursed? What's he saying? If it doesn't originate in God and find its authority in God's word, it is a false doctrine and needs to be rejected. If it's coming from this man or this vision of an angel and it contradicts this gospel, Paul says it's accursed. You don't give any heedance to it. You don't listen to that. But man, in today's day and age, we are bombarded with teachings. And some so subtly, just ever so subtly, move the needle just a hair away from truth. And we have to ask the question, to understand grace, where does it originate? Where does it come from? The doctrine of grace finds its source, its origin in the person of God and his attributes. It is all throughout Scripture. Grace is not only a New Testament teaching. The Bible is covered with example after example where God demonstrated grace to mankind. We may overlook those examples when we read of a judgment or a consequence from God to mankind, but grace is there throughout, including in the beginning. We look at some of these things, we read about God judging mankind, bringing judgments and allowing consequences of sin, and we think, where's God's grace there? But that doesn't take away God's grace. It just affirms he is gracious and just and holy. So we have to understand there's a balance to our God. He is not all of one and none of another. God is love, but he's not love in spite of holiness or to deny holiness. So when you understand grace, you have to understand grace is a part of who God is. It's not just something he does or something he demonstrates. It is in his very character to be gracious, just as it's in his character to be holy and just and righteous. God doesn't become gracious in a moment. He is the source of grace. He is truly perfect. Therefore, only he can be truly gracious. He is truly perfect. Therefore, only he, only God, can be truly gracious. The idea of grace implies someone receiving merit or worthiness, favor, by no effort of their own. Grace is defined, some have had it defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a great definition. It's a great way to kind of summarize what grace is. But the actual definition of grace is defined as unmerited favor. What does that mean? I do nothing to earn his grace. Because if I could earn it, it's not grace. By the way, we should be really thankful about that. You should be so thankful that you don't have to earn his grace. Because the truth is, you can't. Because if you could, you would have. And there would be no need for Christ. The truth is, since God is the only one perfect, then only he can be the origin of full and perfect grace. Because as a fallen man, even when I show someone favor or grace, my motives, humanly speaking, may have a hint of selfishness to them. I may have a hint of selfishness. Even in wanting to be gracious, there may be this backward thinking of just, well, yeah, but you're going to do this for me now. Or I'm going to show you grace, so you'll show me grace later. God is perfect, and when he gives his grace, he gives it because it's truly undeserved. And we know what happens when his grace is given. We'll talk about it in a little bit. He is glorified, of course, but he gives his grace because it's what we need. 
not because it's what we deserve. We question even in understanding that reality. We question things like, wait a minute, I get that God is the origin of grace, but why do I even need his grace? Why do I need his favor? Who is God to give me favor? I don't care if God gives me favor or not. We question who is God to judge sin at all? Who is God to judge sin anyway? Who is he? How dare he judge me or my supposed sin? Why do we need grace? The truth is God must judge rightly and harshly with sin. Otherwise, he would not be God. The truth is God must deal harshly and rightly with, with sin. Otherwise, he would not be God. So you might say, well, why do I even need his grace? Because without his grace, you are liable for your sin. You are not pardoned from your sin apart from his grace. And in your sin, you are also liable then for the weight of that sin, which means separation from God for all of eternity, according to Romans. That in my sin, under the judgment of my sin, I am found guilty. And I don't deserve heaven because I am guilty. I've shared it before. Maybe you've talked to people and evangelized people, shared Christ with people, and you'll ask them questions like, do you believe you're a sinner? Do you know what's funny? In all the years I've shared Christ with people, I've never had one person say no. I mean, really? When I actually ask them, do you really believe you've sinned? Do you believe you're, you're not perfect? They'll go, well, of course. And then they'll say this, there's no one perfect. At that point, you want to actually just shake their hand and say, thank you for making my case for me. I appreciate that. There is no one perfect. We're all in sin. And then I'll ask them, well, if God is holy, righteous, and just, and, and you just admitted that you're a sinner, that you've broken his laws, and you stand before that God on judgment or on the day of judgment, how would he find you? And then they say this, I would be found innocent. That's interesting. Why would you be found innocent? You just admitted that you're guilty. And they say, because God is love. And God would look the other way. Now, the truth is, the only way that any human being is called innocent is when they have received the free, loving gift of Jesus Christ. That apart from his mercy and grace in Christ, I am guilty and I will pay for my sin. That's what the Bible actually teaches. You see, grace to us is needed. Grace originates with God, but then he graciously offers it to us. Praise God. Man, how amazing is that thought, that he has grace and he gives it to us. He extended to us undeserved merits. When we think of the grace of God, we usually only, now hear me now, we only focus on the love for us. When we think about the grace of God, we usually only focus on his love for us. However, his grace is more than just a simple act of love. It is an act of divine substitution. It is more than just a simple act of love. We think of an act of love as just an act of kindness, an act of just generosity. It is so much more than that. It is an act of divine substitution. We not only do not deserve his grace, we actually in fullness deserve his wrath. We have reduced the gospel to be nothing more than a story of only God's love. And while it is true, it is about his love, we are omitting what that love cost Jesus Christ. I hope you're hearing me now. 
We take the gospel and we, we kind of reduce it down to just God loves you, so get saved. And we omit the very thing that allows them to be saved, which is the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. The gospel. You see, he extended to us undeserved merit through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what John chapter 1, verse 17 says. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, as the New American Standard translates it. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that grace had never existed. And when Jesus came, he was and is the manifestation of God's grace. He was the, I mean, he was the physical display of God's grace. It was realized God is gracious. He sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. He took the shame and the guilt and the wrath of God in our place so we might stand in the gospel clean, pure. What does the Bible say? That we are washed, spotless, and cleansed. We will stand before him as he is in what John says. We will be like him. How in the world can I be cleansed because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us? One author said it this way, and I thought it was amazing. In saving us from his own wrath, God has done what, uh, God has done what we could not, and he has done what we didn't deserve. In saving us from his own wrath, God has done what we could not do, and has done what we didn't deserve. We have said, heard it said, and, and, and it's something that's said often in church or Christian circles. We have heard it said that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. We've said this so much in culture today that I think we are starting to believe it's love the sinner and God will overlook the sin. The truth is, the Bible says God loves the world and hates sin. It's true. God loves the world, John 3.16, and hates sin sin. However, when we are in our sin, when we are in our sin, we are not in Christ, we are in our sin. The Bible says in the first 50 Psalms, 14 times, how God abhors the sinful and will destroy the liar. Hear me now. God loves the sinner. God hates the sin. The Bible teaches that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But yet, in the first 50 Psalms, 14 times, God says, and Psalm chapter 5 was an example of this, he actually says, God abhors, abhors the sinful and will destroy the liar. You might say, oh, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. That's just Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the same chapter as the most popular verse about God's love, we find the most neglected verse in John 3, 36, which actually says, John 3, 36, He that believes not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. Psalm says that God abhors the sin full, will destroy the sinner. R.C. Sproul said it this way, God sends the sinner to hell, not the sin. God sends the sinner to hell in their sin, not the sin. 
We have to realize something key here that I think actually gives more weight to the gospel, makes the gospel and the cross even more beautiful. We have to realize that God doesn't see sin as merely something outside of us that happens to us. Hear me now. God doesn't see sin as something outside of us that happens to us. God defines sin as what is coming out of us. In our sin-fallen state, it is us. We are broken. Remember last week I said how beautiful we are. We're a creation of God. That is true. But I also said this, and I hope you caught this. That is the destructive power of sin, is it perverts the beautiful creation of God. That's why God hates sin. Because it robs the creation that was created this way of its full potential, of its full the image that could be displayed. God does not see sin as merely something outside of us that happens to us. He sees it as something that is in us and flows out of us. God's holy anger towards sin and those that practice sin makes the cross so much more beautiful. You see, he didn't just take the sin outside of us. He took the sin in us. He bared our place on the cross. So how can God love and abhor the sinner? How can God say, I love you, but I'm also going to destroy the sinner? How in the world can those two things coexist? It doesn't make sense. Well, the answer is simple. We look to the cross. Because in the cross, we see God's anger and wrath for the sinner and the sin, and also his grace and love for the sinner. Do you see that? Isn't it amazing to think about this? That God says, man, the weight of sin, the wrath on sin is so great. But my love for you, my grace for you, is I will send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear that weight on the cross. And as the wrath of God was poured on Christ, now you are able to receive Christ to be forgiven of your sin and to stand cleansed and pure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he has made him to be sin for us. And we have to listen to what the word of God actually says. He made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Charles Wesley, who was the leader following the Reformation and introducing and encouraging congregational song leading and singing, wrote this. Charles Wesley said this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be? that thou, my God, shouldest die for me. And you want to know the power of the gospel and the power of the cross? Don't reduce it down. Don't make it less than it is. Understand fully what the gospel is. It is Jesus Christ bearing the place of those who deserve to die for their sin because he loves you and because his grace is for you. But when we just tell people, oh man, God loves you, get saved. And we completely omit 
the weight of what that love cost, the weight of the sacrifice. When we don't teach people and encourage people with the truth that, listen, you are liable for your sin, God will not look the other way. God cannot look the other way apart from Jesus Christ because that would make him not God. He is holy and he is righteous. But man, praise God, he is loving and he is gracious. And when you receive Christ, the free gift of salvation, he says, you are mine and I am yours and you stand innocent before him. Not by your works, but by his work of the cross because it is finished, Jesus said. And I love what Wesley wrote. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, shouldest die for me. Do you ever just stop and think about how undeserving you were of the grace that he gave you and not to beat yourself up and just think, oh, I'm a wretched, 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 wretched person. No, 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 no. You are a wonderful creation of God whose sin has perverted and corrupted, and in Christ, he has restored that original image to where now you can display his grace. And I pray that we will understand just, just even a little the weight of the grace of God. You see, because God is the origin of grace. He is the source of all grace. He extends it to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And apart from him, we have no hope. Only in Christ do we have hope for salvation and eternal life. But also, and maybe even just as amazing, we've not just received grace from him to us. We can actually give grace to others. We can give grace to others. 2 Corinthians, you're already in 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. I'm going to start with a very familiar passage, a very familiar verse, I should say, and then I'm going to read on all the way down through verse 20. And pray, prayerfully, uh, you'll see the connection to the verse I just referenced a few minutes ago, Second Corinthians 5.21. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and starting in verse 17. Paul, writing to the church here, says this, Therefore, if any man be in... Christ, and there's that transformational process that takes place in Christ. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Verse 18, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us, who's the us, those in Christ. He has reconciled us to himself by our good works, by doing good things, by going to church. No, no, no. He says in verse 18, by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How is the, what is the only way that someone's sins are not imputed to their account and put on their account in Christ Jesus? It says in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, grace to others 
begins with receiving first the grace of God, and then it extends out of us. We are ambassadors of God. We are ministers of reconciliation. When we understand the full weight of what the gospel gives to us through grace, how can we withhold forgiveness and grace from someone else? As though our standard is higher than God's standard. The only way that it is possible is to first receive by faith his grace and forgiveness and then preach and demonstrate that very truth in our own lives. When we forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, when we forgive someone who doesn't even ask, we are demonstrating grace to them. We're demonstrating grace to them. Every time I don't remind them when they were wrong or point out when I am right, no one can testify to this, amen? Every time I choose to not point out to them when they were wrong or point out to them when I am right, I am extending grace. Every time I reconcile with a family member, I extend grace. This doesn't mean we do not set boundaries in our relationships. This does not mean we trust instantly. We simply forgive because we have been forgiven and we work towards restoration when it is healthy to do so. Really cool example. I love how God is as far as how he works in our life um, in circumstances and situations. As I was preparing this message this week, God is so good. He gave me two opportunities to experience this truth in my life. Isn't that great? Two opportunities in one week to experience this truth in my life. It's one of the things, one example, and I won't give details as far as who or whatever, but, but one example was someone was speaking to me, and I was in not the best mood. Just, can we be real for a minute? You ever just, just react and you know you should have not reacted? Anybody been there? You say something and you wish you could just grab it and bring it back? And somebody said something to me and I just reacted. And I could tell instantly that it bothered this person that I said this and it got them to react. And then now we're just this heated tension in between the two of us. And you know what's amazing is a little bit of time went on and then we were able to dialogue. That same night we dialogued about this and said, man, listen, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant to say. And they said, well, I'm sorry. That's not really what I meant to say. And then even later in the week, it came up again where the same person was like, listen, I just want you to know I'm really sorry. And I said, man, I'm really sorry because that was wrong for me to react that way. I should have, I should have listened to you more graciously. And you might think, well, that's cool. That's an application of this, right? I mean, I said something and, and somebody responded and then we were able to mutually give grace to one another. And I didn't deserve it. I was in the wrong. And they said, well, I was in the wrong. And so we gave grace to each other. It was wonderful. And guess what? Everything's fine. Isn't it amazing how just dialogue can just restore that? You might say, well, you don't know. I mean, what if you don't agree with the person? Then you can still show grace and say, I just disagree with you. And at the end of the day, we're fine. Why do we always got to be agreement and every little thing? No, you can have a different opinion than me on something. It's fine. You could be wrong. It's good. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay, that was a joke. But if you think about this, like we can have a dialogue. So, so you can think, great, cool. Get this. God gave me another opportunity to experience this this week. I was good with one, Lord, but you got to give me another one, so it's cool. This time, somebody said something to me, and I took it as a joke, so I joked back. Everything seemed all right in the moment, and I'm so thankful for this. Get this now. I left the conversation. I thought everything was fine. The next day, this person calls me and says, Hey, listen, I just want to know, did I say something that upset you? No? What? What? No, I'm good. What are you talking about? 
well, this and this and this, and, and you said that. And I said, oh, I said, well, I was just being sarcastic. I was just joking. And they said, okay, well, I was kind of just joking around too, being sarcastic. But I started thinking, well, maybe you took it to heart. And I said, no, I'm good, man. I said, I appreciate you calling, though. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We got to talk about it. Everything was fine. But can I tell you how thankful I am that somebody just picked up the phone call or phone and said, man, I just want to make sure. Now, this doesn't mean, listen, now, hear me. We don't walk on eggshells. We don't, we're so paranoid. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago, there are some people that will feed on that. And they'll actually try to manipulate you and control you by making you think you, should, you owe them. So we're not talking about that. I'm talking about just in general, everyday relationships. If you say or do something that you think, man, I look back on it like that could have offended that person. You make a phone call. You have a conversation. You don't go in anger. You go in grace. Hey, listen, if I said something, or if, if somebody said something to you that you're like, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe this. And it's offended me. I'm offended. I'm so offended. And then weeks go on and weeks go on and weeks go on. And then you say something like, well, that person hasn't even said sorry yet. They don't even know. They have no clue. But you're sitting there just like, I could just punch them right in the face. They don't know. So you have a conversation. You go graciously and say, look, I just, this was what happened. And I don't know what you meant by it. I don't know. And, you have, and if the person says, now listen, some people, especially not in the church, not in Christ, they may be like, yeah, I meant it to hurt your feelings. I was just, I mean, listen, this is life in this world today, fallen world. They might say, yeah, no, I meant it. I thought you were being stupid. Then you get, you know what? Well, I'm sorry you see that way, but I'm fine. You know, I forgive you. And you know the power in that? Again, you don't go to them for advice, right? You don't go to them for counsel, but you just forgive. Because if, if you harbor that, it's only going to cripple you. And if you're sitting there like, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, I don't know, just have the conversation. I am so thankful that when people just come to me, and this is not because I'm the pastor, I'm talking about just in life. I'm just so thankful when people come and say, hey, listen, just so you know, this and this and this. And, and all of this was done one-on-one. -on -one. It was done very cordial, very nice and, and kind and polite conversation. We were fine. But I'm so thankful because, listen, listen, when I was given grace this week for something I said and reacted and I was in the wrong, and then I was able to give someone else grace and say, no, you're fine. It wasn't even like that. Man, the freedom that comes in that. And the only reason we can do that is because we've received grace first from him and forgiveness from him. So now we are able to forgive others. See, our salvation, our salvation in this life is grace on display. Your very salvation is grace on display. Ephesians chapter 1. One more passage, I believe, and then we're going to get ready to close. Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, be praying for Pastor Keith and Renee Corbett. Uh, I believe they're coming back, I think, today? No, tomorrow. Yes, okay. Uh, be in prayer for them as they travel back. They got a chance to get away uh, for the last week or so, a little more than a week. And, uh, man, I'm just so thankful for those guys. Um, and when they get back, you let them know you appreciate them. You let them know they were missed. Um, I appreciate uh, Alan and Abby uh, serving in the praise band, even though mom and dad aren't here. Um, I know the temptation. Well, mom and dad aren't there. <laughs> Who's going to know? Okay. I appreciate those guys serving. 
and uh, being a part of our praise team, and uh, we miss those guys. We'll be praying for them as they travel back. Um, it is, I saw, many of you maybe saw the video on Facebook that, that Renee uh, shared. Uh, I believe that was maybe Wednesday, somewhere in there, and uh, just what a great time they're having. Um, I felt a little bad for Pastor Keith. Um, if you watched the video, you'll know what I'm saying. If you didn't watch the video, you have to watch it. There's a moment where he gets on film, and I don't think he realized he was on film, and instantly he was like, oh, and he was out of the camera. And you're like, where'd he go? Because he was, I'm not going to be on film right now, okay? There's nothing better than when somebody's like, oh, hey, hey, say hi. And you're like, I look a mess. Like, what are you doing? Sandra loves that when I do that, by the way, when she just like first wakes up, comes out of the bedroom. I'm like, hey, so-and-so wants to say hi on video. So I don't really do that. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't be standing very long if I did. Just say that. Um, okay, so Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. Now, the whole first chapter here is amazing, um, and I encourage you to read this on your own, obviously. But look at verse 6. It says here, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Where does acceptance come from? Not in what I do, but in his grace. I'm accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace wherein he hath abounded, us, abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated. Uh, don't get hung up on that word. Okay, don't, don't, if you want to talk more about that word, we can. It's in the Bible. It's fine. Okay, just breathe. Being, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's good. Uh, being predestinated according to his, uh, I'm sorry, being predestinated to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, and whom you also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There it is again. How are you redeemed? How are you saved? How are you praising him and his glory, or bringing glory to his grace, because you heard and believed the gospel. It says, of your salvation, in whom also that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Verse 13 is huge. Talk about that we were given the Holy Spirit of God in the moment of salvation. Why? So that we are indwelt and kept by the Spirit of God. You do not need another baptism of the Spirit. The Bible's pretty clear. It says, when you received Christ, you received His Spirit. When the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 5 being filled with the Spirit, that is not getting more of the Spirit because He left you or you need more of Him. It's saying you're actually giving more of you to Him and you're growing in Him. We have all that we need in the moment of salvation because of his grace. Chapter 2, verse 4. I'm glad you guys brought your Bibles this morning. I want to read a few more verses if that's all right. Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his 
grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. And not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Man, if you ever start to think it's about you or think it's about how you can keep your salvation, just go read these verses again and be reminded, no, God, it is your grace that I am saved. It is your grace that has redeemed me and placed me in the beloved. And now out of that, what does he say? I work out of that. I labor, as Paul said, out of your grace. Every breath we breathe as redeemed children of the living God is a living testimony of the abounding and mesmerizing grace of God. Every breath we breathe as redeemed children of God is a living testimony of the abounding and mesmerizing grace of God. I love when Paul says in Ephesians that the keys in our salvation did not revolve around our goodness or our righteousness The couple clear keys are God's pleasure in his will, his grace, his love, his plan. When we walk this life forgiving others instead of getting even or holding a grudge, we are glorifying the grace of God. I want you to think of it this way. If you've ever been to an art gallery, you walk through an art gallery and you see all these beautiful works of art hanging on the wall. Some sculptures under glass, some beautiful paintings. And you walk this gallery and you'll stop and you'll just stare into a painting. And you'll look at every brush stroke, every color, everything in the picture, trying to get the fullness of what you're seeing. This beautiful work of arts on display for all to see. Paul says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, God will use you to demonstrate, to display his grace. You are the artwork. You are the beautiful work of art that is on display. And the entire world is looking and watching and staring and taking note of each brushstroke, each unique way that you were created. And at the end of the day, there is no other's name, no other one's name on that piece of art than God himself. He is autographed you. He has labeled you as his in Christ. And you can walk around this world today and say, I am not who I am because of me. I am who I am because of him and his grace in me. And everything I do is to reflect that. So when I receive grace and when I give grace, forgiving others because I've been forgiven, it is display of his grace. And so let me ask you a question this morning. If you've received his grace, are you giving his grace? If you've received his grace, Are you giving his grace? Grace is the one thing that all of humanity longs for, and grace is the one thing that all of humanity refuses to give. And we love when we get grace, but we often do not want to give it. And so this morning, the invitation is simple. The band's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation, and I encourage you to do what the song says, to come to the altar, to feel a real, genuine weight of the sin that you carried before the cross, the weight of what your sin cost Jesus Christ, and then to, to know that his grace has forgiven you and to say, I am with God and he is with me, not because of me, but because of his love and grace in my life. I deserved his wrath and I received his grace freely. He offered it to me. I received merely what he gave. 
So maybe you want to come this morning and just bend a knee and say, God, thank you for the cross. God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you that you gave unmerited favor when I needed nothing else. I needed your grace and you gave it. But maybe you'll come this morning and say, I am in my sin. I have not received Christ. I've gone to church. I've said the words. But I know that I have not been changed. My heart has not been transformed. I have not put faith in Christ. I said some things. I raised my hand because I didn't want to feel like the only one not raising their hand when I was in that service. But I don't know what I prayed. I don't know if I even believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you would come and say, Lord Jesus, I need to trust in you and you alone for your salvation of my, and the forgiveness of my sins. Maybe you want to come and just say, God, would you just reveal to me your grace? Maybe you want to come you've received his grace. You know it. You know Christ. And praise God, you are redeemed. Maybe you want to come and say, God, help me to display your grace and to forgive this person in my life or this situation in my life. Help me to have wisdom on how to move forward in this. Whatever God is doing, you need to respond to him this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as the band comes and we are led in a song of invitation? Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that the cross displays to us not only your love for us, but what your love is willing to do for us. That we deserved your wrath. It wasn't just sin that needed to be punished. It was those that practiced sin. We are and were the sinful. And we didn't deserve your grace. And Lord, I know this kind of a topic is heavy, but I pray that it would do uh, really only one thing, and that's point us to the cross. I pray that we, as Paul said, we would glorify in the cross. Because at the end of the day, when I deserved your wrath, you offered us grace. And those that receive your grace, receive your forgiveness by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, Jesus plus nothing. It's not about baptism or church membership. It's about putting their faith and trust in Christ. When we make that decision to buy faith, trust in grace, you say, you will save us. You will redeem us and forgive our sins. It's so simple. Lord, almost too simple for some. We think there's got to be more to it. But Lord, I pray that we keep it simple and realize it's just about trusting you. And so I pray, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that is in their sin, I pray that they would not take that sin lightly but they would realize that they, they need your grace. Thank you for being a God that is who you are, being just and holy, perfect, but being gracious and loving in the same accord. So may we see the answers in the cross, and we can trust in that today. Help us to live a life that demonstrates grace and forgiveness to those around us. Lord, may you lead, guide, and direct, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As these guys lead us in a song of invitation, would you respond? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone that you need to receive God's forgiveness? Would you come? Bend the knee. There are those that would love to pray with you. Would you come?